we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you so much. You can have a seat. I so appreciate the opportunity to uh, pray together. Man, that is so important to do as, as a covenant community of believers, as husbands and wives and as families and as groups of friends and small groups within a church to come together before the throne of grace and intercede on behalf of God. Uh, I just want to echo what Jordan said earlier. It is so awesome to see several more faces here this morning than we've been able to see lately. Um, we are... Uh, very conscious of the ongoing weariness of the pandemic. Yes, at the same time, uh, we will celebrate every piece of good news. And we are celebrating the fact that we have a facility large enough by God's grace to have more people here on Sunday mornings and, and still be operating in a safe way. And so we're grateful for that. Thank you to all of you who have come. Uh, it's awesome to not have to sign up. So we are excited about that. Good to be together again. Amen. Give a, give a hand. Let's thank God. Man, I tell you, it can be so easy to just focus on what's wrong, um, and we don't want to ignore that, but at the same time, God is so faithful, and let's celebrate that. Uh, I just want to reiterate again, if you're watching online, whether you're a regular part of our church family, thank you for tuning in and continuing to make this live stream a priority. The fact that you're not here means all the more you need to connect with your church family, so thank you for making that a priority. And if you're not a regular part of our church family, whether you're here on campus right now or whether you're watching on our live stream, we are so glad that you have found us this morning. Uh, we say you have found us, which is kind of a human way uh, of using language. It makes it sound like an accident, but the truth is um, we don't believe that's an accident. I believe that God brought you here this morning, whether it is physically or digitally. God has brought every single one of us here. I have no idea what your story is or has been this week, but God has a purpose for you here. By the way, my name is Matt. For those of you that haven't met me, um, I'm one of the pastors here. I serve as our lead pastor and one of our elders. We're just thrilled that you found us uh, here at Harvest. And, and I hope that in these next few minutes that we're going to open up the Bible and look at it together, we will see, uh, among other things, that uh, while we often speak of finding a church or finding God, the truth is God is not passive. God is not passive. God is not sitting there somewhere in heaven, twiddling his thumbs and waiting for us to decide we're ready to go find him. It's not the picture the Bible paints. God is actually very active. He is in active, aggressive pursuit of his agenda in human history. And his agenda is to redeem people like you and I. That's why we're here. We're actually studying the New Testament book of Acts, and we're continuing that <clears throat> series this morning as a church. We will work ourselves all the way through Acts from start to finish. We'll probably take a break at some point and go do some other things because Acts is quite a long book, but we will then come back to it. We will finish it this morning. We're going to finish Acts chapter 6 and uh, all of Acts chapter 7, and here's the reason that we're, we're looking at this particular book. It has so much to say to us both as a, a local church like Harvest, about, about what a local church even is, about who we are, what we're supposed to be doing. And at this day and age, in this sort of pandemic time where so much of the normal activities of churches like ours have either been totally shut down or significantly curtailed, this is an important question to ask. <clears throat> because as important as our activities are, our small groups and our children's ministry and our ability to have worship services that people can attend live and in person, as important as all those things are, none of them are our identity. 
They are all means to an end. They are a means to accomplish the mission of the church. So we've been saying throughout this uh, second half of 2020 and in the beginning of 2021, We've been regularly saying as a church, man, our environment has changed dramatically this past year, but our mission has not. The mission that God has given his church has not changed at all. The mission that God gave Harvest Community Church has not changed one bit. Pandemics don't change God's mind. So what is the mission? The book of Acts gives us such a clear answer to that question. Uh, Acts, if uh, a casual observer were to read it, uh, you would notice that it's, it's sort of a history book. It, it is recounting events. It's mostly narrative. And yet it is so much more, as all historical books in the Bible are, it's so much more than just a dry recounting of narratives. Actually, in recounting this narrative, this history of the first church in history, the church in Jerusalem as it came into being and then later as it continued to spread all throughout the first century world, we don't just get history as we read that. What we get is a really clear picture of what God is doing in the world and how that relates to you and I, whether we are Christians and members of a local church or maybe if we're just trying to check out God for the first time and figure him out or anywhere in between. The book of Acts shows us what God is up to in this world. In fact, we've been putting this uh, slide up every week. We probably will continue to do that because as we worked through Acts chapter 2 in particular, it sort of serves as an introduction to the entire rest of of the book and what's coming. It kind of helps us frame what we're supposed to be looking for as the events in this story continue to unfold. What message is God trying to send us? That's the question I, I want to encourage us each to ask this morning and every Sunday as we open up the Bible. What message is God trying to send to us by recording this particular series of events and these dialogues? What we saw there is that God has a purpose. He has a mission. He's not passive. He's active. And his mission is this. He is seeking to make disciples. That's, that's the biblical word. He's seeking to reconcile people to himself and garner followers, members of his kingdom who can live with him in heaven for all eternity. God's mission is to make disciples, but not just any old way. He's doing it by pursuing a very specific agenda, specifically three things. He's making disciples by spreading the gospel in the power of the Holy Spirit through local churches. That's what God is up to in the world. That's his agenda. That's his mission. That's the purpose of history from God's point of view. He's making disciples by spreading the gospel. The gospel is the content of God's plan. It is the message of salvation, who Christ is and what he has done to redeem us. We'll talk about that more in just a moment. But it is essential that we get the gospel right if we're to be in alignment with God's plan. But the message gets spread, secondly, in the power of the Holy Spirit. That is, that's the power for God's plan. So as it turns out, A lot of the things that we do as people and as individual churches matters, but it doesn't matter ultimately. We can't finagle people into the kingdom of God. I can't change somebody else's life. I can't even change my own heart most of the time, much less yours or anybody else's. No, no, no. If people's lives are going to be radically changed and if they're going to receive eternal life, God is going to have to work a miracle. If we are functioning apart from dependence on his spirit, we are doomed. So the gospel is essential, but the role of God's own Holy Spirit and working in dependence on him is essential. But thirdly and finally, 
God is making disciples also through local churches. Through local churches. Covenant communities of Christians who are not only the, the, the product of God's plan, like people become saved, people are redeemed, we become disciples, and therefore we gather together as churches. So God's plan results in churches, but churches then also become the platform to launch continued transformation of people's lives, which means what we're doing here this morning is one of the most important things going on in the universe. Do you believe that? According to the Bible, I think that's actually true. You're like, yeah, a pastor says that on a Sunday morning. Shock, right? You think what you're doing is the most important thing in the world? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Not, not, not so much what I'm doing. What we're doing. Like, this is the most important thing going on in the universe. The local church gathering to have God revealed to us, to worship him, to have us grow as disciples and empower us to live in the world for Christ and be the basis to redeem more people. Well, that's what we've seen. That's what the book of Acts is all about. And so the last few chapters, we've seen the, the, the story of this first church in Jerusalem unfold. The church grows, it encounters opposition from without, it encounters opposition from within, it deals with those in faith and the Holy Spirit. And then as we saw last Sunday, the church has to continue to adjust and change as new opportunities arise and new challenges arise. The way we do things in a church is never sacred. What we are doing is sacred. And so we always need to be willing to lay our, our procedures, our operations on the table and let God change those things to address new and changing circumstances because the mission is always the same, making the gospel clear. And it's interesting at this point in the book of Acts, we now arrive at today's passage. Um, the last part of chapter six, which is brief, and then all of chapter seven, which is quite lengthy. As a matter of fact, last Sunday, I think, was the shortest passage we will look at in the entire book of Acts. We looked at chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. It's only seven verses long. Uh, today is about like 68 verses long. I think it's the single longest chunk of scripture we will look at throughout this entire series. And there's a reason for that. Uh, the passage that we're in this morning tells the story of a guy we were actually introduced to last Sunday a guy by the name of Stephen, a member of the first church in Jerusalem. And he is out there making the case for the gospel. And some of the, his fellow Jewish people at the time who did not believe Jesus was the Savior were arguing against him. And the majority of our text this morning is a lengthy speech, essentially, that Stephen gave in response to this challenge, this idea that, hey, the gospel, the Christian message does not align with the Old Testament. That's really what they were saying. And he's like, oh, no, 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 it does. Now, let me just say, whenever we're reading a narrative in scripture, a, a record of events, dialogue is really important because that kind of tells us what's going on in the hearts and the minds of characters. The fact that this entire text is less a narrative and more a dialogue is really important. This is the single longest speech recorded in the entire book of Acts. There are several. Some of them are a bit lengthy. This is by far the longest. Like this is a really important passage of scripture. It takes up an entire chapter. God wants us to catch what Stephen is saying so that we will understand the flow of events. So, in the limited time that we have this morning, here's what we're going to do. We're going to take a look at this speech. We're going to read through it um, and, and kind of get the whole sweep of it in three sort of major points. First, we need to set the stage briefly. So if you've got your Bibles, turn them to Acts chapter 6, 
verse 8. It's where we left off last week. This kind of sets the stage for us and helps us understand what is happening. Acts chapter 6, verse 8, I'll read down to 15. Now Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. And some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians and those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen, but they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. So they secretly instigated men who said, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and against the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. The high priest said, Are these things so? And Stephen said. And we'll stop right there. <laughs> the rest of our text is what Stephen said. So this kind of sets the stage. Just a couple quick things to notice that'll make a little more sense out of Stephen's speech that we're going to read here. Uh, first of all, we need to understand that what Stephen is about to do is he is essentially making the case that the Savior God promised to send in the Old Testament is Jesus. That's, that's essentially what he's arguing. That the, the message that Jesus is our Savior is perfectly consistent with God's message in the Old Testament. He was accused by these uh, folks who were opposing him of essentially two things. They, they were saying that, that the gospel, the Christian message, is contrary to the law of Moses, firsthand, in other words, the Old Testament. And secondly, it is um, contrary to the sacredness of the temple in Jerusalem. Now, to be a Jew in the first century, especially when you're in Jerusalem, the temple was their pride and joy. It was one of the wonders of the world. It was a glorious building. It was the center of Jewish worship. And so they had the Old Testament, what they call the law of Moses, and then they had the temple. And it's like we have God's word and we have the building with God's presence. This is where God speaks. And if your message doesn't line up with this, then your message is wrong. And so they're arguing the Christian gospel violates the law of God and it undermines the sacredness of the temple. So in their day, that's what they were arguing. Essentially what they're saying is your message is totally inconsistent with what we know to be true of God. So Stephen's speech is to say no, <laughs> no. Actually, the message of Jesus is perfectly consistent with what God said through Moses, the Old Testament, and it has nothing to do with the sacredness of the temple. That's essentially what he's going to say. Now, just before we even dive into Stephen's actual response, there's some useful things to notice here. First of all, it's worth noting that the Bible has one story from start to finish. The Bible has one story from start to finish that is perfectly consistent in the message that it is revealing. All 66 books of the Bible, 39 Old Testament books, 27 New Testament books, all come together to convey the same message. And that message is that God is on mission, making disciples, 
through the spread of the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit by local churches. God has a mission. He has, he has plans. Like he's going somewhere. God is doing something in human history. And it's worth pausing for a moment before we read further and saying, do, do you often think about God that way? But maybe you've come in here this morning or you found our live stream. Maybe you're just trying to figure God out. Do you realize that God is not passive? God is not passive. He's not just waiting for us to do stuff. Like, he's doing stuff. He's going somewhere in human history. And that's actually good news because that means that, that God is, is seeking people. That means God is seeking you. God is seeking you. It's, it's not an accident that you're here or you're tuned in with us this morning. God is moving in the lives of people to redeem people. The essential reality that the, the, the Bible tells us, that the message the whole book is telling us, is that God wants to know us. In fact, he made us to know us, and we did know him, and it was glorious. It was beautiful. It's what we were made for until we cut ourselves off from him by sinning, by rejecting his authority in our lives, choosing to become our own God and live apart from him. Now the result is we live sin-cursed lives in a sin-cursed world. That's the only world we know. It's a world that's cut off from God, and it is a world that is destined for the eternal punishment in hell that our sin deserves. That's the hard reality of it. And yet here's where the news gets really good. God did not just leave us to stew in our own juices. <laughs> as Tim Keller once put it. He didn't just leave us to wallow in that problem. This is where God's agenda comes in. He is pursuing lost, rebellious sinners like me, like you. In his love and his mercy, he came into this world as Jesus to live sinlessly in our place like we should have lived and to die a sinner's death on the cross in our place that we deserved to die all so that we could be reunited with God, but we don't deserve it. That's his agenda. That's what he wants you to know. That's what he wants you to experience. He's seeking to reconcile you to himself through the person and work of his son, Jesus Christ. If you're ready to admit your sin, to stop rationalizing it or justifying it or blaming other people, if you're ready to call your sin what God calls it, yes, I'm a sinner, I am wrong, if you're ready to bank on the death and resurrection of Jesus as your payment for sin and embrace Jesus Christ as God himself, not only the king of the universe, but the king of your life, you will experience God's forgiveness. You will experience reconciliation with him. You will experience eternal life. That's the agenda that God is after. That's the message of the Bible from beginning to end. That's what he wants you to know this morning. I urge you to to ask God how that message applies to you, to not leave this place or this service without talking to a Christian friend you know. If you're here on campus, you can come talk to myself, Pastor Jordan. We'll be around afterwards. We'd love to help you get to know who God is and what he wants for you. If you're watching online, you can click that connection card form that uh, Pastor Jordan referred to earlier and just give us your contact info. We'd love to give you a call and help you settle business with God. That's what he's after. But you know what, for those of us that have already embraced Christ's sacrifice and forgiveness, the Bible still has one message and it's important. 
Because if God's mission is to spread his kingdom through the gospel and the power of the Spirit through local churches, that having received his mercy in life, his mission now becomes our mission. His mission becomes our mission. The, seeing the unity of the Bible's message shapes our view of why we're here. As Christians, it leads us to ask, like, what, am I, what am I doing when I get up every morning? What am I living for? What am I giving myself to? Finding the perfect spouse? Having a great career? All good things. What am I giving myself to? There's nothing greater to give ourselves to than to participate in our local church in the spread of God's kingdom in this world. Well, as Stephen is confronted, he summarizes the Bible's, the unity of the Bible's message. He brings it clear. His, his summary emphasizes uh, most of the book of Genesis and all the book of Exodus, the first two books of the Bible. And he draws out this story of God's mission to redeem sinful and doomed humanity. But you know, in the process of doing that, he also highlights how people, even many of the best informed and most religiously inclined people in all of history, often miss the very God that they seek. And so as he tells this story of how God is revealing his desire to redeem humanity, he also tells the story of how God's own people kept missing him and rejecting him over and over again. And in the process of doing that, we see this morning at least three surefire ways we can miss Jesus and what he is doing in this world. Three ways we can miss God. They were true back then. They are still true today. The first way that we can miss God is an, what we might call an, an, an obsession, an overdeveloped obsession with the here and now. Now, this kind of takes center stage in the first, you know, sort of third, the first of these three points in Stephen's speech, verses 1 through 16 of chapter 7. Let me read those. Stephen said to them, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia. He's taking us all the way back to Genesis now, Genesis chapter uh, 12. Before he lived in Haran, and he said to him, Go out from your land and from your kindred into a land that I will show you. And then Abraham went out from the land of the Chaldeans, and he lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but he promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. God spoke to this effect that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and inflict them for 400 years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, says God, and after that they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave them the covenant of circumcision, so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob, and Jacob became the father of the twelve patriarchs. Pause there for a moment. This narrative starts out by Stephen saying, do you realize what God has done? He just picked a guy who didn't deserve it, Abraham, and said, I'm going to bless you and all your descendants after you. I'm going to take you to a land of promise, the promised land and I'm going to set you up for good. I'm going to bless you. This is God's powerful promise. It was God's choice. It was not what Abraham deserved. So then Abraham had a son. He had a grandson. The grandson had 12 
great-grandsons from Abraham's perspective, and those 12 guys became the heads of the tribe of Israel, God's people. So they're, they're the, the recipients of this promise, the inheritors of this promise. But the story takes a twist, verse 9. The patriarchs, that is, these 12 great-grandsons of Abraham, the guys who were the center of Israelite history, were jealous of Joseph, their brother. They sold him into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him out of all his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. And there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan, summarizing now the the latter chapters of the book of Genesis. Great affliction, and our fathers could find no food, but when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers on their first visit. On the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers. Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh, and Joseph sent and summoned Jacob, his father, and all his kindred, 75 persons in all. Jacob went down to Egypt, and he died. He and our fathers And they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor in Shechem. As Stephen recounts this part of the story, he points out that God had this wonderful promise, but none of the people involved in the story at the time are thinking about the promise. They're actually focused on themselves. They're obsessed with their here and now. God is gracious to them and saves them despite their faithlessness, not because of their faithfulness. In fact, when you go back and read those chapters of Genesis that Stephen is summarizing here, you realize that everybody involved is kind of a knucklehead. Really. I mean, some of you are laughing, right? Because you know the story. These are the great patriarchs, right? The, The heads of the tribes of Israel, God's people. You would expect them to be spiritual superheroes. They were anything but. They were kind of all knuckleheads. When you go back there, you realize their father Jacob played favorites with Joseph over all of his other brothers. So like dad already set this thing up pretty poorly. There's favoritism going on in the family. He's got his favorites and his non favorites, and that's what he's focused on. Joseph himself, the favored younger son, was an arrogant young teen who flaunted his special privilege in front of his brothers. Not very smart. There were 12 of them. One of him. But he loved his special position and he had no problem letting his brothers know that he was all that. Just fueling their anger. He, just, he was focused in on himself and his special position. And then as for the 12 brothers, well, they were all jealous to the point of scheming against their brother, even to the point of violence. They jumped him out in the wild. They were literally going to kill him. They relented a little bit and just sold him into lifelong slavery. Thanks. These are the spiritual heroes of God's people, right? What is going on? These These are the heirs of God's great promise. Are they focused on that? Not in the slightest. Everyone was focused on what they want right here and right now. They're obsessed with the dynamics of the here and now, much like you and I. Much like you and I. The clear lesson that's being drawn out here is not only the lesson of God's ongoing faithfulness, but also the here and now faithlessness of the patriarchs. Obsession with the here and now can cause us to miss what God is doing. That's as true now as it was back then. It could be our life circumstances. I want to be happy in my job. 
I'm going to be happy in my marriage. I've got these life goals that I'm, I'm seeking. That can so become our reality that we cease to see what God is doing. Or even more so, just the news headlines of the day. Especially in the day and age in which we live, where there is so much information, so unfiltered, and it's constantly at our fingertips because we're all carrying these around everywhere we go. We can be so obsessed with what's going on right now, today, as if it is the most urgent thing in the world that it becomes very easy to lose and miss what God is doing in human history. That's a cultural bent we have always had as Westerners. It's a problem, I think, for everybody around the world in this day and age, but but some cultures, like Asian cultures, for instance, tend to think in longer timelines than we do as Westerners. As Westerners, we've always been kind of a here and now people, man. What have you done for me lately? It's about today. And then you add to that the reality of technology and echo chambers, and it becomes a real problem. You know what I mean by echo chambers? Uh, that's not my phrase. That's a phrase that other people have quoted. It's, it's basically where you, you enter into a, um, a media space, a digital space, where you, all the information you take in is pretty much from people that already think like you, and it's stuff you already agree with. And that's the only stuff you listen to. And this has gotten really sort of um, insidious because nowadays you don't even have to try. Just by surfing the web nowadays, there are algorithms that will track your web browsing habits. Most of you probably know this. And without you even realizing what's happening, those algorithms will custom tailor news, your, your, your news feed. It will custom tailor news stories to you that they think you're interested in in order to you know, get clicks and get likes and get eyeballs on the screens because that's what drives the whole thing. And the result is without me even realizing it, like, I could pull up my phone or my computer one day and just look at, look at my news feed or look at my social media feed and I'm just seeing a whole bunch of stuff that talks about how right me and my tribe are and how stupid all these other people are, right? And the more I read about how right I am, the more right I think I am because look at all these people who are saying it and anybody who disagrees with this must be an idiot. Funny thing is, people on the other side are doing the exact same thing. Except these guys are getting stuff from Fox News and these guys are getting stuff from MSNBC. And we're all in our echo chambers. And the more we stay there, the more right we're convinced we are. And the more we're convinced that whatever the headline of today is, is the most important thing. This is existential panic. If this goes wrong, we cease to exist. And when we marinate in that 24-7, 365, then God comes along and he's like, I'm obsessed with making disciples. And we're like, yeah, right, that disciple thing. But don't you realize what just happened in the Capitol building yesterday? See? The problem is, even as Christian people, at best, sometimes things that are like a 10 in terms of importance to God, they're like a 3 to us. And stuff that God would say, yeah, that's like a 2 or a 3, like, yeah, you should give that some thought at some point. But we need to go make disciples. And we're like, yeah, 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 right. But, but this is the most important. You see, the echo chamber gets us obsessed with the here and now, and it can lead us to miss God without even us realizing it. So many influences create a here and now world that will cause us to miss Jesus. It's one of the reasons being in church on a Sunday morning is important. Now, let's be real. It's only an hour and a half a week, so it'll only do so much, but it's really important. It's really important. Uh, 
putting a stream or a pre-recorded service on in the background while I go about and do my other things for a year, like that has a detrimental impact on our spiritual lives. Coming and gathering and turning off our phones for a minute, connecting with other people who don't necessarily think the same way we do politically, but we're all united in our pursuit of Jesus and listening to his word taught is essential for us. But it can't just be Sunday mornings. Many of us would benefit from thinking carefully about limiting and varying our media intake. Limiting it some. Like if I'm in the Bible five minutes a day and I'm on news and social media for hours a day and radio, you know, what's going to affect me more? We may need to limit it. Uh, it's probably also helpful to vary it, like to go intentionally read other perspectives just so that I don't get so focused on one perspective. But even more importantly than that, And I hope and I pray that we will be a church that increases our intake of God's perspective in and through his word. So that with all the here and now alarmism of things that are going on, it's constantly counteracted with and marinating in the sense of what God is revealing to us in his word. I got kind of personally convicted about this maybe maybe about three years ago now. Um, I will tell you, my job is one of the greatest things in the world for my spiritual life. (laughs) Like, I have to study the Bible, and that's really good for me. But what I found over years is because our our normal habit here at Harvest has been and will continue to be that we uh, teach, we call it expositionally, through a book of the Bible. We'll start in a book like Acts, and we'll go all the way through it to the end. What I would find is that oftentimes I would spend months in like one book of the Bible, especially if it was a longer book. You know, so we'd be in a book like Romans or something, and I'm getting all this great theology out of Romans, and I haven't read anything from the Old Testament. I haven't even read it in like six months. You know, or we'd be back in a book like Exodus and learning all these wonderful things about God's plan, and I haven't read a psalm or I haven't read anything in the Gospels and just walked with Jesus in literally months. And so while the discipline to study was good for me, I found like I was really honing in on very narrow bands of the Bible and kind of ignoring the rest of it. And so uh, a couple of years ago, uh, I downloaded the Discipleship Journal Bible Reading app. That's what it's called, DJ, Discipleship Journal Bible Reading app. If you've got um, a phone or a device, who doesn't, you can go to your favorite app store, download it for free, or you can just Google Discipleship Journal Bible Reading app. Uh, Also, if you've got an ESV study Bible, they have a, a Bible reading plan. It's the same thing. Basically, what it does is it takes you through the entire Bible in a year, and every day you read four different sections. Old Testament, Psalms, Gospels, and New Testament epistles. So every day, like you're reading widely, and you get through the entire Bible in a year. I've done that, I believe, twice now. I'm working on either year number three or year number four. I can't actually remember when I started. So every day I just get up. It doesn't matter what I'm preaching on Sunday. I'm just reading more widely from the Bible. I read stuff, I'm like, wow, I forgot that was in there. That's right. (laughs) And I let that come in and shape my thinking. Now, more recently, here's what God is convicting me on. It's good that I'm reading it. Sometimes I do it audio and I listen to it. Other times I sit down and read it. Uh, Sometimes I do both. But it's good that I'm reading it. What I've not been doing lately is uh, jotting anything down. Like sometimes reading God's word will prompt a thought and, and I pray and then I just go about my day and I've sort of forgotten about it. And it's like, man, if God is teaching me lessons, I need to write stuff down. It's easy for me to say, hey, I'm just not really a journaler. You know, it takes time. It takes energy. And lately, I've been convicted to say uh, whether or not I think I'm a journaler. Dude, get over it. (laughs) You've got to write down what is God saying? How are you engaging with it? That's where I'm at in this journey. What would it look like for us as the people of God to limit, vary our media intake, and above all, increase our intake of God's word?
Well, the first problem that, that Stephen points out is that God's people were obsessed with the here and now. So even while God was blessing them, they were missing it. But this lesson didn't end there. It moves on to another way that we can miss God, not only by obsessing with the here and now, but also through pride. The Bible calls pride, or we might call arrogance. We pick this up in verse 17. Now as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. Now we're moving into the book of Exodus. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers and exposed their infants so that they would not be kept alive. At this time, Moses was born. He was beautiful in God's sight and he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and he was mighty in words and in deeds. Oh, pause here. The story is getting good. God has now not just made a promise. God has sent a savior. God has sent a savior, small s, Moses, the guy who's going to lead his people out of slavery by the power of God and into the promised land. You see, when you read the Old Testament, you realize that Moses, is, he's a Christ figure. <laughs> he, he prefigures the work that Jesus would do. That's the ultimate story of the Bible. But here's the problem. How did, how did the people of Israel, God's people, respond to this wonderful Savior that God had sent them in the person of Moses, verse 23. When he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptians. So here's this Egyptian abusing uh, an Israelite slave, and Moses rescues the slave from the abuse, kind of prefiguring how he would rescue people. But what happened? He supposed, verse 25, that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. This is part of the story. On the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and he tried to reconcile them saying, men, your brothers, why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, a forcible picture of rejection, saying, who made you ruler and judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? And at this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian where he became the father of two sons. As God's beautiful promise comes to pass by sending a Savior, how does Israel respond to that Savior? They reject him. They reject him. This is the very guy God sent to bring you out of slavery. I want nothing to do with you. This unnamed Israelite, who clearly, according to this text, was in the wrong, looks at the very person God sent to save him, and he doesn't see a Savior, he sees a judge. He sees a judge. Who are you to tell me I'm in the wrong? I don't want to be saved on those terms. I don't want to be saved on those terms. He saw Moses not as a savior, but as a threat to his own, his own rightness in his own eyes. The biblical word for this is pride, and that's not a good thing. That's not like, good job, be proud of yourself. That's like arrogance. That's like it blinds you. Pride is when we're so sure we're right, we can't really countenance the idea that we might be fundamentally wrong. Just like that Israelite who refused 
to admit he was wrong, but rather accused Moses of an arrogance that Moses didn't even have. The arrogance was all on the part of this guy who couldn't admit that he was in the wrong. It's like a funhouse mirror. That's how pride works, you know? You're seeing God, but it's all warped out of shape. And so the, the, the image you're seeing of God isn't actually seeing God clearly. I think I'm looking right at him. I'm seeing a clear picture, but it's not. It's all warped and changed. So the Savior that God sends doesn't look like a Savior. He looks like a judge. And we reject him. Pride makes us interpret everything that happens as proof that what we feel is justified and that people who disagree with us are horrible. They are the enemy. They need to change. Pride leads us to believe that we deserve to look at porn. We deserve to have premarital sex. We deserve to drink to excess, you know, because of the pain we feel or the stress we're under or how hard we work or whatever other series of excuses we choose to line up. Pride makes, us, pride makes evil look good. It makes wrong look right. It makes me look smarter than God in my own eyes. I don't want to hear what God says. I only want to hear a twisted version of it that justifies me as being right. By the way, somewhat ironically, religious devotion is a particularly fertile ground for the sin of pride and arrogance. Which, which is odd at first, right? Because if you're devoted religiously, that means like you're pursuing God. You want to hear God. You're a God person. You believe in Jesus. You want to connect with God. And the Bible says, hey, warning. Even that desire can become a source of God-warping pride. Our very pursuit of God often inoculates us against the idea that we could fundamentally miss him. Maybe I don't have everything right about God, but come on. I believed in Jesus most of my life. I go to church every Sunday. I'm in a Bible study. I might not have everything right about God, but I can't be fundamentally wrong. It's all those other people who don't sit under regular preaching, who don't go to Bible studies. Maybe they're fundamentally wrong about God, but I just couldn't be that wrong. But the minute I think I can't possibly miss God, I become a victim of my own pride. And the likelihood that I will miss God goes up dramatically. There's a warning here. The second way that we can miss the point is through pride and arrogance. Beloved, is, is pride making you see only the wrong in your spouse? Maybe is pride making you only see the wrong in another person while you see only goodness in yourself? Well, maybe I'm willing to admit I do have a few faults, but fundamentally, right, they need to change. Not me. Be careful. We need to be careful. Lest the very Savior that God sent come and tell us we're sinners in need of grace and our pride lead us to see him not as a Savior but a judge. We need to be careful lest our pride lead us to trade the rich banquet of his grace for some stale, warmed-over crusts of how could I possibly be wrong, prideful religion. It will never satisfy. Pride, like that funhouse mirror, will seek, cause us to warp God and completely miss him, sometimes even when we're pursuing him the most. There's one more lesson in Stephen's speech. 
Not only had God been faithful up to this point of sending Moses to his people, and his people had repeatedly missed what he was doing because they're focused on the here and now, and they're all caught up in their pride. But lastly, as the narrative goes on, we get one more way that we can miss God. And that is through our urges, our passions, our lusts, which can often lead us into idolatry. We pick up the story in verse 30. Now when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him, that is Moses, out in the wilderness of Mount Sinai, in a flame and a fire and a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight. And as he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. God is staying faithful here. He's like, I made a promise. I'm going to keep it, even though you guys are knuckleheads. I'm still revealing myself to you. I'm going to save you. And the Lord said to him, take off the sandals from your feet from the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their groaning and I've come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send you into Egypt. They've rejected his savior, but he's sending him anyway. (laughs) Moses, you're going to be the savior who's going to lead my people out of Egypt into the promised land. Once again, God's beautiful promise comes to pass. And through 10 miraculous plagues, through the miraculous parting of the Red Sea and the miraculous provision of food and water in a desert wilderness, God rescues and sustains his people. It's amazing. It's beautiful. But again, Israel rejects God. Verse 36, this Moses, whom they rejected, saying, who made you ruler and judge? This man God sent as both a ruler and redeemer the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brothers. Moses himself said, I'm not the ultimate savior. I'm just a picture of the savior. There's an ultimate savior who is yet to come. That's Jesus. This is the one, the story goes on, verse 38, who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers, he received living oracles to give to us. God's teachings, in other words, yes, the laws of Moses are God's word. But notice verse 39, our fathers, ancient Jewish people, refused to obey him, but they thrust him aside and in their hearts they returned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So they made a calf in those days. They offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven. As it is written in the book of the prophets, did you bring me to slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Moloch, the star of your god, Raphan, the images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile, into Babylon. What's the point? God delivered miraculously, but again, the Israelites, God's own people, reject him. They build this this calf in the wilderness, this golden idol, Exodus chapter 32. And it's interesting when you go back to Exodus and read that story that Stephen is summarizing here, it says very clearly that the people sat down to eat and drink after they made this golden calf and they called it Yahweh. They made an idol to worship and they called it their God. And it says they sat down to eat and drink and they rose up to play, our sanitized English translations say, The word they rose up to play actually has connotations of sexual orgies and sexual immorality. 
They had a gluttonous, carousing feast that they called the worship of God, and at least a few thousand Israelites participated in this as they worshiped an idol and called it God. Why? What in the world? Why would they do this? It's not really that hard to understand. Because they were tired. They were sick and tired of being in the wilderness. They wanted what they wanted and they wanted it now. The promise of the promised land was meaningless to them that night. As once again, lust warped their view of things like a funhouse mirror. They saw evil is good and God is worthless. They said, let's do what all the other nations around us do. Let's party, let's make an idol, let's worship it. Give me something tangible. And there's a lesson here. Our lusts, our passions, our aches, our yearnings can cause us to miss God. Use me to ask what, what passions and lusts are driving my life right now. Have you developed any COVID sins? You know what I'm talking about, right? Maybe this stuff that uh, I used to battle a little temptation to overeat or watch stuff I shouldn't watch or, you know, whatever. But, you know, and then COVID comes in and all of a sudden, like, I'm a total glutton, you know, or, or whatever, right? I'm, I'm just going kind of full on into this because the stress is raised and, and, and life is hard. And so we run to what will give us short-term comfort. These things can't satisfy Actually, just the opposite. They'll, they'll kill us in the long run. God has something far greater for you. He's got infinite joy. Think about that. Infinite joy. Total freedom from guilt and shame. Deep satisfaction from knowing your purpose. And endless acceptance and love like you've never dared dream was possible. That is what God offers to an undeserving world. That's what he offers to me. That's what he offers to you. That's his mission. That's his agenda. That's the relationship he wants to enter into with us. But life is hard. And so our desires can cause us to lose sight of God. We can go to church every Sunday and say we believe in Jesus and totally miss him. Stephen's speech recounts the beautiful unity of God's message. Facing the charge that the gospel contradicts the word of God through Moses, that is the Old Testament, and contradicts the sacredness of the temple, Stephen essentially says, no, it doesn't. You know what? Our fathers, God's people, had Moses. They didn't just have Moses' words. They had Moses himself, and guess what? That didn't help them follow God's salvation, did it? In fact, he goes on, verse 44, Our fathers also had the tent of witness in the wilderness. That's the building that preceded the temple. Just as he who spoke to Moses directed them to make it according to the pattern that he had seen, our fathers in turn brought it with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. And so it was until the days of David who found favor in the sight of God and asked to build a permanent dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. In other words, we've had this great temple and tabernacle of God for generations. Verse 48, yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. As the prophet said, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? You know what he's saying? 
Our fathers had Moses, they had the temple, and they still missed God. What has God been doing? God has been seeking to save through sending a Savior, and that Savior is Jesus. So Stephen brings it home. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit just as your fathers did so to you. Which of the prophets did not your fathers persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one whom you have now betrayed and murdered, referring to Jesus. You who received the law as delivered by angels and yet did not keep it. You guys have missed God. So having their hearts exposed and open to finally hear the love and the grace of God, how did they respond? Not super well. Because like most of us, the last thing they want to be told is that they're wrong. Verse 54, when they heard these things, they were enraged. They ground their teeth at him. You can just picture, snarling. <laughs> these guys were hacked off. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. He's just once again saying, Jesus is the sovereign Savior, God himself. They cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. The witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul, who's going to become important for the rest of our story. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep. He died. They killed him. They killed him in their pride-driven rage. They couldn't possibly be wrong, not them. Facing the charge that the gospel contradicted the word of God through Moses and the sacredness of the temple, Stephen shows them what God's word actually says. <laughs> that even Moses and the temple weren't able to keep people from missing God. Their short-term focus, their pride, their lusts have conspired to keep many from seeing God's salvation, even when they were staring it right in the face, the face of Jesus. And so where does all this lead? What is the point of all this? That there's one unified message in this book. And it's God pursuing his agenda. And guess what? You and I are on his agenda. He's pursuing us not to lie to us, but to be honest to us about our sin and our need, and yet not to condemn us, but to save us. And he does that through the personal work of his son, Jesus Christ. Yet still they refuse to hear. Their pride was enraged at being called out so forcefully, they literally executed him for speaking the truth. History's first recorded Christian Martyr, that is a person who dies simply because they are proclaiming the good news of Jesus. Sadly, he was nowhere near history's last. Stephen lost his life. Or did he? What are we living for? That's what goes through my mind when I read a scripture text like this. Man, what am I living for? What am I giving myself to? What greater thing could I give myself to than the work of God in this world to glorify his name by redeeming lost people like you and me and people all around this community? Church, that's our mission. By the grace of God, let's have done with our here and now focus, with our pride, with our obsession about the events of the day. 
Let us put those things in their proper place and give ourselves to the mission of making Jesus known to those around us. And ask the worship team to come back up and pray for us. Holy Spirit of God, would you fill this place? God, more than a place, would you fill the people in this place, the physical space, the digital space, everybody who is gathered here physically, who is tuning in online, Spirit of God, fill us. For those of us who have never repented of sin and seen you, Jesus, as the glorious Savior you are, I pray that you would grant us the gift of repentance. Help us to see that our sin is what it is and that we're hopeless apart from you, but you and your grace have come to live, die, and rise again for us. I pray that you'd move men and women to repentance, that they could find eternal life in you. And God, I pray that you would move your spirit in this church to unite us in what has been a really unusual and for us a very hard season as a society. But God, may churches, may this church shine as a unique light because we are willing to lay down how we've done things. We're willing to lay down our pride. We are willing to go all in for the glory of who you are in sending Christ to redeem people. Change lives in our midst. Use us to do it. And even now as we worship you in song, God, I pray that you would unite our hearts more deeply with you. Help us to know that when you have convicted us of sin, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. There is freedom. And so God, as we lay down our sins before you, may we experience forgiveness. May we experience the loosening of the bonds of shame. And may we respond in joy in your love for us. Receive praise from us now in song, we ask. In Christ's name, amen.